Man, what a beautiful song. I mean, it's Eric Clapton, the theologian, and he was wrestling, if you know the story of the song, he had just kind of been rock and rolling for many, many years, finally had reconnected with what it means to be a dad, started to reconnect with his son, and then a tragic accident loses his son, and he begins to wrestle with the questions. Are there going to be tears in heaven? Will I recognize you when I get there? And what are the real issues of eternity? It's until you face mortality, your own or someone else's, you don't necessarily think to think about this stuff. I mean, just this week, I had an opportunity to talk with a, a wife who we're going to do the funeral for her, her husband who died in his 50s. And we talked about heaven through tears and laughter this week. I talked to another husband. We're going to do a funeral for his wife, a celebration of her life. And he talked about the joy. He can't wait to celebrate her life as we gather together in December. Talked with one of our band members who just played that song, who lost his mom this week. Issues of eternity are with us all the time. And we can delay it when you're young and you're like, you know, invincible, nothing's going to happen to you. But as you get older or face tragedy, you start wondering, what is heaven like? And how do you know what's true of all the different views? And what view is going to give you real hope? Do you realize how diverse the opinions of heaven really are? I mean, if you're facing death the death of a son like Eric Clapton, is this going to help? Don't worry, you get to play a harp. Forever. Strum. Strum. Like, I mean, I think I would enjoy that for about half a second, if that. That is not going to give me a lot of hope, the strumming heaven. Or maybe it's, I got a little bit of nothingness here. Nirvana is the teaching from Buddhism that nothingness is what happens when you die. And then if you can realize that this world is currently a dream world and that nothingness is what you're ultimately bound for, then you can eventually have nothingness, and that can be the peace you have now, that the nothingness can give you peace that you'll have nothing to go. Got to think about that one. There's the idea from atheism that when you die, you just rot to death. This is it. Hope you enjoyed your life because that's all you got. You reincarnate into energy, which means you're not going to see grandma again. You'll see a little energy that used to be grandma, but she's now scattered into this and that and that and that. Or do you remember the crazy um, group Styx, Show Me the Way and the Grand Illusion? I mean, Styx got their name from the, the view of the Greeks and Romans' view of death. When you die, you get in a, a boat, and the Grim Reaper kind of moves you along the river Styx. And if you don't do real well, you're floating there. Hey, but he didn't do real well. If you don't pay the piper, if, if your relatives don't put enough money on your tombstone, then you end up kind of floating around the river Styx. So, Grand Illusion. And then eventually, if you do make it over there, you get to face the three-headed dog. And if you do well with the three-headed dog, then you either go to Elysium or go to Hades. Still think all religions are the same? I'm not sure that the three-headed dog is going to give me a lot of peace. But how do you know with all the different opinions? What's true and what's going to give us real hope? This is why Christianity is so unique. Christianity does not claim to be a philosophy, though it has philosophical implications. It doesn't claim to be theology, strangely, though it has theological implications. The Bible claims to be history. Now, the reason that's helpful is because history is something we can check out. Are there facts that Jesus, God, really came to earth, really did miracles, really died, really rose, really appeared to other people? We can check the facts of history. We can't check the facts on philosophy. So of all the opinions that are out there, Christianity offers something unique. You see, a been there, done that overrides a wish this, think that. A been there, done that overrides a think this, wish that. We all think this might happen. And I've been at funerals here where people got up and said, I saw a bird today on the way to the funeral, and I know my brother's now a bird. I know people who've read beautiful poems. 
People think they wish and things they think. But how do you know that? Christianity says that God came to earth. People witnessed it. We can look at the archaeological eyewitness accounts. He died. There were people who believed in him and didn't saw him die. He came back from the dead and said, hey, I've been there, done that. Let me tell you what happens after you die. Because I conquered death. And so with that framework, I want you to know that this can be something not just we think about, but Christianity claims you can know for sure what happens because the guy who defeated death says, I've been there and done that. You can think and wish it's true, and you're going to wish this is true, but you can know it's true as well. So let's look at some of the specific questions our kids ask. We'll go to question number one, a little bit about heaven. What do we need to know? Hi, I'm Cole, and in heaven, do you get anything you want, like I have like a Lamborghini in heaven. Uh, my name is Julia. Uh, and is everything true about heaven? I've heard of like the streets are gold. <laughs> All right, we got Cole and Julia. Lots of good questions on there. How do we know it's true? What is heaven like? Are the streets of gold? So let's talk about what it's like first. Do you remember when you were a kid? Or even when you've had kids that were young? But do you remember that time when you're on your way home from a late night dinner maybe that your parents were hanging out at somebody's house and you fell asleep in the back seat of the car. Yeah, they're driving, clunk, clunk. And you're kind of asleep and then you, you arrive at your house and the door opens, you're still asleep and dad picks you up. He puts you over his shoulder. And whether you're dad, you remember that feeling? <laughs> they're getting heavy. And if you're a kid, you remember kind of that, that stasis of like you're awake but you're not awake and you can feel dad's heartbeat and the warmth of his strength. And the dad carries you at our house. We had a, a two steer. So you walk up the stairs to where my bedroom was, walk down the hall, and you're still kind of there. And he sets you in bed and you realize you're home. And you pull the covers up. Like you, you recognize the scent of your own bed. You recognize the, the covers that you use. Mine was a Star Wars comforter. And you pull this thing over and you're like, I'm home. The Bible describes death when you know your heavenly father as this transition from one reality to another that your dad has you and as you die you separate to go to another reality and it feels like home it's warm it's loving it's where you always belong and you're there with your dad that's what heaven's like it's how it's described. And the separation from body temporarily to your permanent body in heaven is like your dad carrying you from the car to your, to your bed. Now, how do we know that's true? I, I hope that's true, right? Even, even Eric Clapton told us, I hope there is no pain. I hope there's peace. I hope there's no tears in heaven. How do we know it? Here's of many, many proofs. Let me give you a summary. We could do two hours on this. Any cursory examination of history whether you are religious or not, something happened to the Roman Empire around 30 AD. Something dramatic happened. And what happened is that, if you think about where Jerusalem is, it's the center point of where Europe, Asia, and Africa come together. Herod had had basically the Super Bowl of his day. It was called Passover. The historians tell us that two million people gathered in that city on that weekend that Jesus was died. This is literally the biggest spectacle of its day. People from every continent. And something happened after that moment. Tens of tens of thousands of Jewish people decided after thousands of years of worshiping on Saturday, they switched it to Sunday. What would cause... Hundreds of thousands of people to shift their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. 
Now, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code would say, no, 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 no. That doesn't happen to 300 A.D. with Constantine. But he's wrong. We have manuscript evidence from 70 A.D., 90 A.D., 120 A.D., where Jewish people say, we changed the day of worship from Saturday to the eighth day Sunday because we saw a guy rose from the dead. Not for something they believed, but for something they saw around 30 A.D., we also felt all these cowardice uh, disciples of Jesus who suddenly go from being cowards to literally allowing themselves to be crucified, boiled in oil, all these things, not because of something they believed, because of something they saw. I saw a dead guy rise again. And the people who took Jesus' body, these weren't like people you didn't know. To reference Joseph of Arimathea, of Arimathea would be like saying, He's one of the wealthiest men in all of Jerusalem. It'd be like saying that Warren Buffett carried the body of Jesus. He was alive. He was well-known. You could check him out. When you say Pontius Pilate killed him, he was well-known. These weren't made-up names of people you hadn't heard of before. Nicodemus would be like a Supreme Court justice who helped carry the body of Jesus. What else would explain the change of the eyewitnesses, the disciples? What else would change the change of the schedule? What else would change the whole Roman Empire turns upside down in their value of life and death and compassion and caring for the poor? Something coincidentally happened around 30 A.D. that the manuscript evidence says from multiple eyewitnesses, we have nine eyewitness reports, that Jesus died and rose and showed himself alive. And that's how we know it's true. Because all these eyewitnesses and all this evidence shows that people saw, and Jesus says, I've been there, done that, and I gave you the proof to show it. Now, what's it like? What do we get in heaven? Well, to that, let's go to the Bible. What does the Bible say happens in heaven and what you get? Behold, the tabernacle of God comes down with man. God's presence comes down with us, and he's going to dwell with us, just like Eric Clapton wrote. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, and no more pain. Don't you see how you'd at least want that to be true, right? That means if if you're losing your father or grandmother to Alzheimer's, they get a brand new body, a brand new mind in heaven. That's the hope of Christianity. Heaven is not some ethereal place where your energy and your Casper the friendly ghost. No, you have a real body in heaven, as we'll talk about in a moment. No death, no pain, no tragedy, no sorrow, tears wiped away, everything fully restored. Now, what about those, uh, those uh, glass golden paths she referenced? Well, the next passage mentions that. And the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. The city had no need for the sun for God's glory illuminated it. So John has got this vision of what heaven looks like, and he's doing the best he can to say it's kind of like gold, but it's like transparent gold. It's like colors you've never seen before. It's beyond my imagination. So what exactly it looks like, we don't know, but he's doing the best he can using metaphors we understand to describe it. And he says, instead of the sun sustaining all things, God's very essence illuminates everything. To which like, oh, come on. How is the universe going to survive without a sun? Well, God becomes the source of life. And there's lots of ways in which things illuminate themselves in science, right? What are a couple of those? Well, you think of um, those mushrooms. You ever seen those mushrooms that got those translucents, right? They glow. They got their own glow. They don't need the sun. They glow on their own through chemicals and through reflection. There's, of course, fireflies and glowworms. There's these essence of something that glows or has power in of itself. And those little bitty things. 
Then, of course, there's another one. There's some MIT scientists who've been working with nanites and putting nanites into plants so you can use your plants at night to read a book. How cool is that? It's a brand new study. You can look it up. They give us permission to use that photograph. If we as human beings could figure out how to make something glow without the sun, don't you think a supernatural, all-power being could find a way to not just work indirectly through the sun, but his whole essence supports us? That's the idea, that you're at home with dad, wipe away tears, fixes everything. All right, question number two. Hi, my name is Riley. If I wanted like a million dollars, could I get that in heaven? Or like some donuts, because you can't get sick. I would want like puppies or like um, a horse and maybe a lot of candy. <laughs> All right, what do we get in heaven? Riley, great question, Julia. We get uh, hopefully candy, donuts, and puppies. So what about that? What's heaven like? And I mean, is there pizza in heaven? Is there food in heaven? You know, and is God like, I'm from Chicago, so like Chicago, Irish, and we talk like this in Chicago. Do you like the deep dish or do you like the New York style? So which one? Is God a New York guy or is he a Chicago guy? And if you get to heaven, do you see puppies? The Bible says the leopard lays down with the lamb in heaven, that there are animals in heaven. For those who wonder if you're going to see your pets again, even Billy Graham said he thinks you do because a verse in Isaiah says all things get restored. So your animals who you loved and cared for get restored and you see them again, according to Billy Graham. If you want to see a puppy, they're definitely in heaven. If you want to see your cat, you've got to go to hell. Sorry. That's, that's what... <laughs> Sorry for all the cat lovers out there. Sorry. But the Bible does describe heaven as a place. In fact, when, when John is seeing a vision of heaven, he says there is food there. In fact, he describes it as a marriage banquet with food and friends gathered together. He says, let us be glad and rejoice. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It describes a place with real people, with real bodies, eating real food. In another place, Jesus describes that if in my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. Now, when we think mansion, we think, you know, one person or one family isolated in a big house. But in their day, to be in your Father's betav or his gathering place, everyone is there. You're like, well, that sounds like a family reunion. That sounds like hell. Imagine, though, nobody disagrees, nobody is mad at each other, nobody misinterprets each other. It's truly a place of family and gathering and connection. That there is this dwelling space that God's saying it's so far beyond your imagination in the love that's there, in the community that's there, and the place that's there. And you're, you are there as you, and you are there and you recognize people as people, and it is a gigantic party. And there is food. And that good news, there is food. In fact, Jesus, when he raises himself from the dead, he appears before Peter, the disciples, and over 500 people at once. And he says, guys, I want to show you what this new body can do. He reaches down, he goes, here's a piece of fish we've been cooking. Here's a piece of honeycomb. That's sweets, that's candy in their day, honeycomb. And Jesus eats the broiled fish with his new body, and he eats the honeycomb, that's candy in their day, and he devours it. And he says, your new body, look at me. I'm not a ghost, I'm eating it. 
Now, Jesus is not like those Elvis sightings. You know those Elvis sightings you always hear about? Denying way, denying way. I'm always appearing to people in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo, Michigan. And you've got to only appear before people who are like at a gas station and only do it like once a year. I mean, that, that's the Elvis sighting is like once a year, somebody somewhere gets appeared. Jesus appears for 40 days he talks to people before he goes to heaven. 40 days, two people here, 50 people here, 500 at one time. This is not like mass psychosis here. He gave evidence to doubters like Thomas to skeptics, that he was alive. Now, if you want to dig more into this, there's a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ, and The Case for Heaven. He was a very much a skeptic. He worked for the Chicago, da bears, Chicago. He worked as a reporter. And his wife got into religion and into Jesus. And he figured <laughs> she would join a cult and he needed a savior from the cult. So he started to investigate Christianity, the historicity of it as an investigative reporter to help her get out of the cult. And the more he tried to show where it was wrong historically, he was shell-shocked over his years of investigation to find out the evidence supported Jesus lived, that he died, that he buried, and as an eyewitness person who did eyewitness reporting, he could not believe that the Bible has more ancient manuscripts and eyewitness accounts than any other ancient document anywhere. It's not even close. So if you want to throw the Bible out, that's okay. But you've got to throw out Gaelic Wars. You've got to throw out everything we know about Julius Caesar. Everything we know about them has this much data. Here's how much we know about Jesus have this much data. So you can say you don't believe anything, but the Bible has more historic data than anything. He ends up reluctantly, through evidence, coming to know Jesus. And he recently wrote this book because, as a Christian, he had an encounter, a health issue, where he almost lost his life. He started saying, let me double-check that my evidence for heaven's really there. He talked to doctors and psychologists and philosophers and historians. He looked at near-death experiences, and he lays out all the evidence in his book called The Case for Heaven. So that's question number two. So yes, there will be food in heaven. Yes, there will be bodies in heaven. Yes, there will be animals in heaven. And yes, even cats will be in heaven. Fully restored. They will finally, we had a cat. He used to jump up and like, claw, 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 claw. And they sit down for like half a second and jump off. Maybe my cat will finally sit and I can actually enjoy him. Maybe. All right, we'll see. Maybe I'll be in purgatory. All right, question number three. Hello, my name is Addison. The Bible says in heaven there are angels. When people go to heaven, do they become angels? Great question. I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about angels. In fact, this will kind of blow your mind. Most of our views of angels come from Reformation art or from the Greek Roman idea of these little babies with wings, little cherubs like Cupid. And it usually is almost totally foreign to the Bible. Or we see these little precious, precious moments, dolls, these little cute little angels. Angels in the Bible, it's kind of a little confusing because angels is a general term for all messengers from God, and there's a specific category of what an angel looks like. So it can include lots of different characters or a specific character, which is why it's a little confusing. But in general, no, we are not angels because angels are workers for God, his messengers. Humans are offered something far better. We are offered the chance to be adopted by God as his co-heir. In heaven, you are reigning with God. You are reigning with dad. You're adopted into his royal family. So much so that the Bible says angels long to look into what we got. It's so good. And Paul shows up in Corinthians and says, hey, we as human beings, 
God's got us so elevated as his family, we get to one day judge angels. Well, that sounds pretty weird. Apparently, the angels are still got some disputes, so we got to come in and say, hey, settle down, Gabriel, come over here, out of the pool, out, 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 pool. Hey, Michael, Michael, come here. I don't know what that means, but Paul says we are not angels. In fact, we're going to evaluate some situations with angels to kind of keep them in line, whatever that means. Now, a little bit about these messengers. Remember, general category of angels is messengers, but lots of different weird creatures. So one are called the cherubim. So cherubim have wings, and they have four heads. The head of a man, the head of a, a lion, the head of a bird, and the head of a steer. Man, Harry Potter's got nothing on the Bible. And they've got some wings, and the wings have eyeballs all over the place. Now, these are often visions, so they're often trying to tell us something. So he's seeing it, but he's describing as best he can. I'll, I'll go back to the cherubim in another second. There's another category of messengers from God or angels called the seraphim. And the word in Hebrew literally means a flying serpent. So I don't know exactly what that means, but they fly around God's presence. I always like to think of them as dragons. Maybe that's where we got all the myths of the dragons from some spiritual reality. I don't know, but that's another weird category. Now here's the strangest one. Every time you go, not just from the category of angels, but specific angels... People always mistake angels for humans because they don't have wings. Every time a bell rings, and, nope, nope, angels don't have wings in the Bible. Angels are almost always mistaken for human beings because they look very similar to them, as long as we're not talking about a seraphim and a cherub. So, kind of weird. Now you might say, well, that's really strange. Um, but, you know, it's interesting how we, we, we get our kids tapped into imagination in so many different ways to Harry Potter or, or Narnia or other books, and then we don't want them to engage their imagination with the Bible. When I was growing up, we used to read this Bible. It's a comic book Bible called the Action Bible. It's the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation in comic book format. And I love this book. It's how I fell in love with the Bible. In fact, we give it out to kids in the Bible. You can use it as a family. And in one of the pictures of the Action Bible, it has a picture of a cherubim. There he is. And so as weird as this creature is, it's really a symbol of God's power. God reigns over the kingdoms of man, the man's face. God reigns over the kingdoms of the wild animals, the lion. God reigns over the kingdom of the domesticated animals, the steer. And God reigns over the sky. So really, how much of this is symbolism? How much of this is the main point seems to be that these creatures, whatever they are, remind us that God's in control of all things and we can trust him whatever we're facing. Now you might say, well, Chad, you just lost me. You just talked about evidence. You talked about science. You talked about history. Now you're talking about crazy flying around serpents. All right, well, you know, if I told you there was a world around us that had crazy stuff you wouldn't believe, don't throw it out yet. I mean, did you know you believe in, in goblins? No, I don't. Sure, I'm sure. Here's a goblin shark. Did you know that actually exists in the ocean? Now, there's a weird creature. Let me give you another one. How about this? There's a blobfish. Google a blobfish sometime. Or here's a fish um, called the lopius fish. I mean, this looks like it's from an alien planet, doesn't it? This is crazy. There's all kinds of crazy things in worlds in the deep we have not gone to see. Imagine another spiritual dimension. Who knows what's out there based on what we do see? How about plants like the ghost plant? Part of the ghost plant looks like a little creature that's jumping off the page. These ghostly little things look like uh, they're almost translucent. Or here's one more for you. That's kind of a crazy one. This is the uh, phantom midge larva. The things we see in the world when we look through a microscope or look through a telescope, there are all kinds of things that are beyond our imagination. And if there is a spiritual realm, there would be things that would be beyond our imagination, but they speak to truths like God is in control 
of all things. All right, so there's a little bit about question number three. Let's move on to our final question, question number four. Hello, my name is Bowden Starr. My question is about Revelation. In the Bible, it says that after Revelation, man will be with God. Does that mean before Revelation, we are not with God? Hi, my name is Corinne, and what's the best way to get into heaven? Bowden and Corinne. Bowden spent more time doing his introduction to his shots. I got to see the B-roll on that. It was like, I'm Bowden. So Bowden worked harder than anyone on his introduction. So uh, if what we read earlier is we're with God in heaven, does that mean we're currently not with heaven? And how do you get to heaven anyway? So I'll start with the first question. If you've ever been flying on a plane, you might hear the captain get on the speaker system, you know, this is your captain Bob, and I'm going to be your captain today, and we're going to be flying very well unless we hit turbulence, and you have a nice barf bag provided for you. So you know the captain. You're with the captain. You don't know him personally. So imagine, a little bit later in the flight, Bob comes on and says, attention, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. Uh, We're going to be going down. Uh, I do have parachutes available to you, and you can follow me as we jump out the, the window. So Bob comes over, and Bob says, here's a parachute. The plane's going down. There's nothing we can do, but I have provided a parachute for you, for everyone, actually. And now is the perfect time to jump. Follow me. Follow out the door here. Door flies open. Depressurized. He says, I've got a little island down here that I've been preparing. It's kind of amazing serendipitous that we broke down at this point. But if you put on the parachute, you'll not only avoid the danger of of blasting the side of the mountain, but you're going to spend eternity with me. Or at least not eternity, at least you're going to spend a time in this beautiful island I have. Well, you got some questions. One, you know of Bob, but you don't know if you know Bob. And now that you know of Bob, you know Bob's saying that your life is headed toward a disaster and that you need something he's got for you in order to save that disaster. And if you do take what he offers you, the parachute, you're going to end up with him for eternity. And being with him for eternity on an island is different from him driving the plane. That's kind of what God says. God says, hey, listen, I have provided you life. I am everybody's creator. There's a difference between God being your creator and God being your adopted father. God comes to us and says, listen, I love you, but the world, it's it's on a havoc pace that ends in a 100% terminal rate for all of us. But I've sent my son Jesus to die to give you this parachute. This will not only save you and protect you from running into the side of the mountain, but this will give you the gift of eternal life, and you can spend eternity with me. And unlike knowing of me, you're going to know me by name. We're going to know each other personally. That's the idea. And God wants us to wrestle with his claims. Can we trust him? Do we know him? In fact, the book of Acts, Paul writes, he says, God wants us to grope for him, to seek him But not just seek him like the Greeks used to seek but never find. The Bible says you can seek and grope and find him. Look at that. God wants you to find him. He's not far from you, and he wants you to have the assurance, the confidence that you can know for sure if you die you're going to heaven. See that word assurance? What's the proof? What's the claim support for that? Your business has to offer claim support for your products. He says the claim support is I sent my son into history And I raised him from the dead. Go look at the facts. And that's the difference between knowing of God or knowing about God and getting to know him personally and trusting him with your life.
Which kind of gets that second question. How do we get to heaven? Well, you really have two choices. Choice number one, heaven is a perfect place for perfect people. So choice number one is live a perfect life. I'm not doing real well at that. I have a tendency to break the Ten Commandments the way Jesus described them at least once a week. Are you murdering people? He says if you hate somebody in your heart, you murder them in your heart. You having affairs? He says if you lust after something, lust after power, lust after people, lust after something besides God, you've committed adultery in your heart. Oh, well, that be a perfect person doesn't sound like I'm going to make that list. The other choice is that you get the resume of somebody who was perfect. And the main message of the Bible is you give God your resume with all the good things you've done that you realize aren't going to cut it and get you into heaven, and all the bad things you've done that are kind of lousy. You give God your resume, and he gives you his resume, and you get in based on his qualification. That's why you can have assurance. You're getting in based on what he's done for you, not what you've done for him. Here's what God wants you to know. I want you to imagine a father and a son walking along in a path. And they've got a good relationship. They're just chatting together. He's probably seven or eight. They're holding hands with his dad. His dad suddenly stops and says, hey, come here. He lifts up his son, holds him in the air and says, I want you to know I love you. And I am so proud to be your dad. Sets him back down and they keep on walking. Did anything about their relationship change? No, they were still father and son. Did anything about the relationship change? Well, in one sense, everything changed. Because the son felt the blessing of the admiration and the affirmation of his dad. Many of us have walked near God. He's kind of, you know, I try not to make him mad. He's out there somewhere. <laughs> Don't call dad. Some of us have even got close enough to walk near God. But when you become a follower of Jesus, you know what it's like to have your dad lift you up and say, I am so proud to be your dad. You've admitted the things you've done wrong, and I forgive you for them. And I paid for them, by the way, with what my son did. And I am so proud to be your dad. That's what it means to be inherited into his family. And I think that's my encouragement to all of us. What does it mean as we study heaven? It means we, we accept his reservation for heaven, for later. I don't want to die for a long time, but I want to know that when I pass away, or when someone I know passes away, I'm going to see him again. I mentioned a few weeks ago that my father-in-law was in a horrific accident, and it's kind of only gotten worse as he tumbled down into basically a ravine and two breaks in his neck and three breaks in his back and surgery that didn't go well and breathing tubes and on and on and on. And I am hoping, and these doctors are doing a fantastic job trying to fix multiple problems and cascading into each other. But I do know for sure that if Butch dies, I will see him again. And I rub that hope of heaven into my grief. On the other hand, I'm praying that we get 20 more years with him. But the confidence and assurance you can have in heaven is when you know it's not whether Butch had a good life or I had a good life. It's based on Jesus having a good life that I know I get to see him. And knowing you're forgiven and knowing you have this new kingdom and this God, this Father who loves you this much, he's prepared a place for you, you start acting today like you're a citizen of heaven. I am fully forgiven. I can deal with my, my crap that I find out about myself because he's already forgiven me for it. When my wife confronts me on something, I don't have to be quite so defensive because she probably is going to acknowledge something that God's already forgiven me for and I can admit it. I can come face to face with it. Think of it this way. We began our series five weeks ago drawing a picture of a reality and saying, what if you had a different reality? 
And you're trying to describe to that reality who you're like. What God is trying to describe to us, two-dimensional beings, three-dimensional space, and what he's done for us, and what this incredible world is out here with spiritual beings. And imagine that God, in trying to describe to us, you know, what life is like, what we need, how we get to heaven, he says, listen, you can ask questions, you can dig down, you can ask whatever you need, and you start just ripping the ideas what God has to shred. You start saying, I don't know if I believe that. You start saying, let's see if this stands up to questioning. You start kind of ripping through this idea, and you start asking, I wonder if that's really true. But in the process of digging in to the facts about Jesus, about his resurrection, you're going to find that when you get past all the things you heard a priest say, you heard a pastor say, and you get down to these are the things I know are true, you're going to take that part apart. And you're going to find that what stands up to questioning and doubts is the cross. It's on the cross we have the final reservation for heaven. And God encourages your doubting. Rip it to shreds. And what's going to remain are the facts. That a man named Jesus lived, died, was buried, and showed himself to be alive. So that you and I could know for sure we have a reservation in heaven. So I want to pray together and maybe you want that confidence like I talked to that mom, like I talked to that son, like I talked to that wife and that husband this week, that they can rub the hope of heaven into their grief by accepting his reservation. Let's pray together. I just want to say this, God, I want that to be true. I'm willing to switch resumes with you. My good deeds aren't good enough for heaven. And my bad deeds are worse than I think. But I accept your gift. Your gift of forgiveness. Your gift of the parachute. And your invitation to come home. In Jesus' name.